Instructions for Christian households. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as it as it as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hi everyone. Hi to those uh, on Zoom. Let me pray for us quickly. Father in heaven, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, through Christ our Lord, for your glory. Amen. Holiness at home. That's what this passage is about. Holiness at home. That, that is to say that the Christian life must be lived Christianly at home. And in this part of his letter to the Colossians, Paul tells us what a Christian life looks like at home. You might call these few verses something like a field guide to holiness at home. Now, uh, I don't think you can uh, all see it from, from where you're sitting, uh, to those of you on Zoom, um, but what I'm holding here is a U.S. Army survival field guide. It has chapters called things like uh, finding direction, uh, signaling, fire building, survival medicine. If you want to become the next Bear Grylls, uh, this field guide is what you need. Now, chapter 3 of Colossians is like a field guide to practical holiness. And it has sections with headings like holiness of thought, holiness of desire, holiness in speech, holiness of relationships in church. And now, as if it were the last section in Paul's field guide to practical holiness, we come to holiness at home. Now, in a few minutes, we'll, uh, we'll open the field guide and hear what Paul has to tell us about holiness at home. But before we do that, it's important to understand why he gives us such a field guide at all. So why does Paul give us this field guide to practical holiness? Well, he tells us why. In chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul explains that his ministry of proclaiming Christ of warning and of teaching, is all with the goal of presenting God's people mature in Christ. In other words, learning practical holiness is part of what it means to grow in Christian maturity. That's what Paul says. That's why we need this field guide to practical holiness. 
But we can say more than that. I am persuaded that the shape and the flow of logic of this letter allows us to flesh that out a bit, allows us to feel a bit more of Paul's heart for the church, allows us to see and feel more of God's heart for us. So before we open the field guide and turn to the chapter called Holiness at Home, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's try and understand why God gives us this field guide. I'm persuaded, as I said, by the overall shape and the flow and the logic of the letter, that there are two reasons. Number one, your Father in Heaven wants you to know what pleases Him. And number two, your Father in Heaven wants you to know how to please Him. I'll repeat that. Your Father in Heaven wants you to know what pleases Him and how to do that thing, whatever it is, which we'll discover in a minute, how to do that thing that pleases him. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, remember the context, remember the backstory to this letter. Some false teachings, wrong ideas about the Christian life, had made their way into the Colossian church. Some said that a truly spiritual person is one who knows and follows all the do's and don'ts of man-made religious rules. Some said a truly spiritual person is one taken up with angels and supernatural mystical experiences. You remember all of that from chapter 2. And how did Paul respond? Well, with respect to the the do's and don'ts kind of spirituality, Paul said in chapter 2, verse 17, that religious rule-keeping was just a shadow of what was to come. And with Christ, the shadow has given way to the substance. And with respect to the angels and sensational, otherworldly, mystical experiences kind of spirituality, Paul says these people have lost connection with the head. They have become disconnected from Christ. That was verse 19 of chapter 2. In other words, whatever kind of spirituality they're pursuing, it's disconnected from Christ. It's not Christian. Colossians tells us that all these kinds of spirituality are not pleasing to God. And Colossians goes on to tell us what kind of spirituality is pleasing to God. And that's what this field guide to practical holiness is. From verse 1 of chapter 3 through to verse 1 of chapter 4, the Bible tells us what pleases our Father in heaven. And do you notice just how earthy it is? Just how real to our day-to-day lives it is. Just like this U.S. Army survival field guide is concerned with very real things like how to tie a knot, how to stop the bleeding, etc. So this field guide to practical holiness is concerned with very real day-to-day earthy things. So against those who say that being truly spiritual is all about being caught up into mystical experiences and seeing the heavens open and the angels at worship, the field guide to practical holiness says no. The truly spiritual person is one whose mind is set on Christ, whose thoughts are pure and holy. The one who is always at war with whatever remains of their sinful nature, killing sexual immorality, impurity and greed. The truly spiritual person is one whose speech is filled with God's words, ministering grace to others. 
The truly spiritual person is one who prizes the unity of the church above getting their own way and so lives humbly and peacefully as part of God's church. And now finally, the truly spiritual person is one who is holy at home in the most unspectacular ways. Against those who say truly, true spirituality is all about religious rule-keeping or supernatural experiences, the Bible says no. True Christian spirituality is about knowing how to live Christianly at home, behind closed doors, in utterly unimpressive holiness. So what pleases your Father in heaven? Holiness at home. But knowing that, simply knowing that isn't enough. We need to know more than just what pleases God. We need to know how to do that. Now you remember I said earlier that your Father in heaven wants you to know what pleases him and how to do what pleases him. Here's the thing. How to do what pleases him, even when you know what it is, doesn't come naturally to us. It's not automatic. Follow this line of thought with me. Notice that this field guide to holiness at home comes right at the end of this major section of the letter. Holiness at home concludes the call to holy living of the whole of chapter 3. And chapter 3 itself is built on the foundation of chapters 1 and 2. In other words, Paul carries all the doctrinal truth, all the theological reasoning of everything prior to these verses into this field guide to holiness at home. In other words, Christian, your home life is fundamentally formed by your understanding of who God is, of who Christ is, of what the gospel is, of how God calls you to live in light of all these realities. Being a husband, being a wife, being a dad, being a mother, being a son, a daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, grandpa, granny, godparent, Christianly, Christianly note, must be shaped not by the world and its ideas of family life. Remember chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive ways of thinking that depend on human traditions and not on Christ. Home life must not be shaped by worldly ways of thinking, but rather by right thinking about God, about Christ, about what pleases your Father in heaven. Why am I stressing this point? Because the structure of the letter tells us that holiness at home is not obvious. It's not automatic. It does not come naturally. We cannot just go with the flow and think that our home lives will be truly Christian home lives. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 come before chapter 3. It needs all the soul-transforming power of the truth that you were raised with Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 12. It needs the call to set your hearts on things above where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 3, verse 1. It needs the reminder that you are God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Chapter 3, verse 12. 
It needs all of that reality to supply the spiritual power and understanding to live holy lives at home. So why do we need this field guide to holiness at home? Because holiness at home is what pleases your Father, and He wants you to know how to please Him in this way. So, now let's open Paul's field guide to holiness at home and hear what pleases our Father. We'll look at this under three headings. Responsibility, roles, and reasons. Responsibility, roles, and reasons. So, responsibility first. Paul speaks to the people that make up the the ancient household. Wives, husbands, children, parents, fathers slaves and masters and to none of them does he say these are your rights he doesn't say as a wife these are your rights as a husband these are your rights as a slave these are your rights and so on he doesn't say that he doesn't say these are the privileges you can expect in this or that relationship now of course Children do have the right to expect certain things of their parents, and similarly in in all the other relationships in view in this passage. And of course, there are privileges in these relationships, but Paul doesn't talk about those. He speaks to each member of the household, one at a time, and says to them, you have a responsibility. Now, just this one point is enough to make it clear right from the beginning that we're going to be rowing against the tide swimming upstream against the flow of our culture. It is undeniably true that we live in a culture that is a thousand times more concerned with rights than it is with responsibilities. And it's so easy to carry that mindset into our homes. We're so conditioned to think of our rights and the privileges we think we deserve and that somebody else must give us. Our rights, someone else's responsibilities. I deserve this, it's my right to have it. And it's your responsibility to give it to me. My rights, your responsibilities. That's the way of the world. And it's not unique to 21st century Britain. It is the way of the world. And it always has been. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve didn't trust God. They disobeyed him, plunged all creation into judgment. God, in his grace, went to find them, to draw them to repentance and back to himself. God said to Adam, Have you disobeyed me by eating from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Do you remember what Adam said? She made me do it. She's responsible. And now that I think of it, actually, God, you put her here. You're responsible. And God said to Eve, what have you done? And Eve said, the devil made me do it. He's responsible. Someone else is always responsible. I am entitled to have things my way. My rights. Your responsibilities. It's the way of the world. It always has been. But it is not the way of Christ. 
And it is not the way of those in Christ. Christian, when you go home, the question that must control your thoughts and your actions is simply this. What responsibility has God given me here? And as you do that, I hope you see how that pleases your Heavenly Father. You are going against the flow of this broken world. You are pushing back against the kingdom of Satan, as we saw it displayed in the Garden of Eden. You are witnessing to the saints who have gone before, to the angels surrounding the throne, to the demons of hell, to a fallen and broken world, that you no longer belong to the dominion of darkness, but that you have been rescued, delivered, and brought into the kingdom of the Son, that you are becoming ever more like your Lord, who laid aside his rights and his privileges, who humbled himself and asked only, what has my Father given me to do? Let me do it faithfully. How do you please your Father? What does holiness at home look like? Lay aside your rights and the privileges you think are yours and take up the responsibility the Father has given you. So what is that responsibility? Well, he tells us very clearly. Each person in the household is given a clear role. There's no confusion. There isn't a long and complicated list. Each person is given one main role, one main idea to remember and to live by. So let's hear what they are. But before we do, I want to say two things. First, for the sake of time today, I'm not going to deal with the master-slave relationship in this text in any detail. I'll just say now, very briefly, that I've sometimes heard these verses applied to modern employer-employee relationships. I don't think that's really what Paul is getting at, at least not directly. In the ancient Roman world, slaves were part of the household. Paul is not defending the institution of slavery. He's simply recognizing it as a reality of his time and treating the master-slave relationship as one of the relationships of the household. His point, I think, is that our relationships to Christ and to one another in Christ transform any and every social relationship in which we find ourselves with a fellow believer, especially those we live with in the same house. I'm not saying that has no principal applications to employment. I'm just saying I don't think that's Paul's main point here. That's all I'll say about that for this afternoon. Second thing I want to say before we get to roles, there is a phrase that belongs to English political history dating back to the early 1300s. It goes... The voice of the people is the voice of God. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now, that has some helpful wisdom in the realm of political philosophy, but it has no place in adjudicating the demands of holiness. Some of what the Bible has to say about roles flies in the face of the culture we live in. This is not the voice of the people. This is the voice of God. And when God says things that make us uncomfortable, especially when God says things that make us uncomfortable, we do well to remember the battle in the Garden of Eden. It was all to do with God's words. Did God really say? That was, always has been, 
and always will be the enemy's attack. Did God really say? But we will not give our enemy any hearing. Instead, we will be like David who wrote, Oh, how I love your law. How I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Okay, we had responsibility and now roles. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. There is to be order in the Christian home. And as Paul tells us in another of his letters, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the wife. Headship and submission are simply part of the way God has designed the fabric of reality. Just as God the Son is of one and the same substance as God the Father and is in no way lesser than the Father, yet still the Son willingly submits to the Father, so too there is to be order, headship and submission in the Christian home. But submission is not subservience. Submission is given, it is volunteered, it is offered, it is not imposed or demanded. True Christian submission of a wife to her husband is when a wife says in her heart, Here I am, I bring all I am, all I have, all my gifts, my personality, my wisdom, my education, my skill, my expertise, my experience, my talents, my abilities, my judgment, even my ambitions. And I give them all to you. I submit it to your headship, trusting that through your headship, God will do the most good and bring me and others the greatest joy. And why would a Christian wife not want to submit to a husband who is following the field guide to practical holiness? To a husband whose mind is set on things above, chapter 3, verse 2, who is actively putting to death all that belongs to his sinful nature, verse 5, who is actively ridding himself of all angry and destructive speech, verse 8, who is learning to fill his speech with words of grace, Verse 16, a husband who clothes himself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, a husband who bears with failings and forgives. Verse 13, a husband who in all he does, does it for the honor of the Lord. Verse 17. Husbands, it is not your right to demand your wife's subservience. Wives, it is your responsibility to submit. It is your role to follow your husband's lead. It is not your right to withhold submission when he fails to perfectly live up to the demands of holiness that Paul has just given. And, husbands, it is your responsibility to pursue your own personal holiness in every one of these ways. Just a quick aside before we move on to verse 19. Why do you think Paul addresses wives first? Uh, It's the same in Ephesians 5. He speaks to wives first. The Apostle Peter does the same uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In every household code in the New Testament, the wives are always addressed first. Why? For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into it, but I'll tell you what I think. 
When you have some time, look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and look at the sequence of God's judgment. Eve first, Adam second. And look at the content of the judgment on Eve in verse 16. What is God doing then in these household codes? He's showing that in Christian homes, in the Christian dynamic of headship and submission between husband and wife, we're seeing some of the green shoots of the new creation. We're seeing things being put back the way they ought to be and the way they one day will be. Wives, what a witness your faithful submission is. Husbands, what a witness your Christ-like headship is. What glory to God is seen in headship and submission when it is pursued under God by both. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love. Agape is the Greek word. Love your wives. It's the same word Paul uses to describe Christ's love for the church in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, agape, love your wives, just as Christ agape loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's very simple. Husbands, give yourself for her good. As Christ gave himself for the good of his bride, the church, so you give yourself for the good of your wife. Whatever the cost, however much it may hurt, not because she has earned it, but because her good is your joy. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Couldn't be any clearer, could it? Children, and I mean those here now or those listening on Zoom, do you want to know what pleases the Lord? Obey your parents in everything. Except, of course, if they ask you to sin or to do something that would clearly not be pleasing to the Lord. Obey your parents. Parents, your authority over your children is God-given for their good. You are to teach your children to obey you because this pleases the Lord. That's it. Not because it makes them happy. Not because they agree. Not because it gives you peace and quiet when you want to watch the game or your favorite show. Without regard to whether or not they want to obey. <laughs> Simply because it is right. God requires their obedience to you which implies your responsibility, there's that word again, to teach them to obey. Obedience is not negotiated, it's not coaxed, it's not bribed. When you have to promise treats to get your children to do as you say, you are entrenching defiance against God into their souls. When you have to count to three before they obey, you are teaching them that God might or might not really mean it when he commands obedience. When there is no consequence to disobedience, you are teaching them not to believe the Bible. Your children are to obey you, and it is your responsibility to teach them to obey you. A very simple tool I learned from a wise older father is this. Obedience means... My children now know what's coming. They've heard this since they were infants. 
Obedience means you do what I say, when I say it, with a respectful attitude. You do what I say, when I say it, with a respectful attitude. A very simple and effective tool for diagnosing disobedience and correcting appropriately. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, uh, just as an aside, but it's worth noting that the Apostle Paul seemed to assume children would be with their parents when this letter was read in the church. Verse 21 then. Fathers, do not embitter or provoke your children, or they will become discouraged. So what is the role of fathers? Encourage. Encourage your children. Put courage into their hearts. They will need it. If they are going to live Christ-like lives in this world, they will need it. They need a champion in their corner. And fathers, it's you. Fill their souls with the reality of who the Almighty is and who in Christ He has called them to be. Put heart, put strength, put resolve into them. The demands of character in a Christian home should be high and they will fail and they will fall. Pick them up. Help them repent. Point them to the grace that is in Christ and fill their hearts with the courage it takes to follow Him. This is how we please God in family life. By taking responsibility for what God has called us to do. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Children, obey. Parents, teach obedience. Fathers, encourage. Clear roles for each. Responsibility, roles, and finally, reasons. Well, I've given the reason already, that we want to please our Father in heaven. And we see that confirmed in the passage. Wives submit because it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love, agape love, as Christ loves the church. And of course your Christ-likeness pleases the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Children, obey, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, encourage towards Christ-likeness. And of course that pleases the Father. So, a field guide to holiness at home. In some ways, such utterly unimpressive spirituality. Nothing sensational about it. No angels, no visions. But for those who have eyes to see, the green shoots, the early buds of a new creation that is soon to come to full flower. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in our homes as it is in heaven. In the words of one songwriter, let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. Amen.